independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. The estimate that I've heard is something like a billion dollars has been come out of the local journalism ecosystem in this country over the past decade. And as a result, you just don't have the capacity in newspapers and newsrooms to tell and report stories. So I, I think as a result, like I, I referenced that Miami Herald example, the Miami Herald certainly has the capacity to do awesome reporting on breaking news when hurricanes are coming. But the more that we can support local newsrooms and the local media to also be reporting on, on environmental stories, the more that it'll serve you know, awareness and solving the problem. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to holistic healing, ecological regeneration, and true abundance and wellness for all. This is a community-backed show powered by people like you. So as we enter this new year, we kindly ask for your direct support today, if you can, at patreon.com slash greendreamer or at greendreamer.com slash paypal. Today's episode features Brady Walkinshaw, who is the CEO of Grist.org, a leading national media organization on issues of environment, justice, and sustainability, reaching 2 million readers a month and syndicating content through over 20 major national publications. We're going to discuss topics including why he led Grist to focus on solutions-oriented journalism, speaking to a future so irresistible that we want it now, how nonprofit journalism explores environmental issues differently than corporate and mainstream media does, and more. So Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. I guess my background is I, I grew up in pretty rural Washington state, and I'm, I'm sitting in my little apartment in Seattle right now, but I grew up about two hours north of where I'm sitting in a pretty small rural agricultural part of the state. And when I was growing up, my dad farmed organic vegetables, worked in agricultural education. My mom was a public school teacher, did a lot with, with migrant education. I grew up in an area that was very heavily Latino. My, mo- my mother's side of the family, I'm a first-generation immigrant. My mother's side of the family, she was born in Cuba. She immigrated here from Cuba. And my, my father's side of the family is, is from Seattle and has long, long been involved in environmental issues in Washington State. But growing up where I did in a pretty rural area that was very connected to food and agriculture, but also very connected to issues of farm workers and labor, From an early age, it really helped me understand the connections between our food system and and the environment, and also how the ways that that we harvest food and and kind of our food systems can be unfair and unjust to a lot of the immigrant labor that's exploited in our food system, and also exposed to a lot of things from working way, way, way too many hours in bad conditions, to being cheated out of wages to being exposed to environmental justice issues like being exposed to toxics that seep into groundwater or 
the drift of pesticides. I have a you know very distinct memory that growing up, I would work every summer in high school and middle school in raspberry production. So I would go out and pick raspberries and strawberries. And I mean, I was a pretty fortunate, you know, my parents are very educated. I, I grew up pretty fortunately. But a lot of the work that I would do, you know, picking, working on, in the raspberry fields as a high schooler, as you got out into the fields, there was work that happened before before you got there at 7 or 8 a.m., which was, you know, having to spray all the pesticides onto the berries so that they would, you know, be ripe and harvest in the ways that you wanted them to harvest. And a lot of the exposure to those pesticides fell very disproportionately onto primarily Latino immigrants who are migrant workers doing the work. I, so I, I think that early on, I was very interested in the connections between our food system, our food production systems, our environment, and then the impacts on, on justice um, and fairness. And that led me, I studied food systems as an undergraduate in college at Princeton. I, I, I was on a Fulbright after graduating, working in urban slums in Honduras, looking at a range of issues that were connected between kind of environmental, I mean, justice and, and connections for kids to nutritious food and thought a lot about those things after I graduated from school. And I found my way back to Seattle in about 2009. I moved back to Seattle a little over 10 years ago, uh, shortly after college, and initially was working at the Gates Foundation for several years before falling into politics. And when I was working in politics, I, I worked very closely at the intersection of, of environment and social justice. So I'll, I'll stop there and I'm, I'm sure we'll dig in more. <laughs> yeah. So since joining Grist in 2017, you've led the publication towards a new strategy focused on making the story of a better world so irresistible you want it now. What direction did you see environmental journalism taking before then at Grist and maybe more generally speaking as well that led you to take on this approach? Well, I think if you step back big picture, I, you know, fortunately, we're seeing a change toward an administration that believes in climate science and climate change, which is a real step forward. I will, I will say that over the, over the last three, four years, if you look at public opinion data in the United States, it's encouraging in that you now have 70 to 75% of Americans who, when asked, say they believe in climate change, and they believe that humans are responsible for it, which is a huge step forward. If you you know rewind the clock twenty years ago to you know when Al Gore was on the ballot in two thousand, then a few years later when when Inconvenient Truth was produced, the the problem was very different. Back then, the focus was much more on building awareness. And twenty years ago, when Grist was started as a publication, you only had about thirty percent of Americans who believed that climate change was real and and man made or human made. So fast forward 20 years, the awareness gap has changed, but the reality is that we have a new gap. And that's really the focus of our strategic direction at Grist. And when we talk about this, a future that's so irresistible that you want it right now, we have a real gap when it comes to solutions. So still in America, fewer than 20% or fewer than a fifth of Americans believe that we can solve the problem. So that's, that's one, one piece that I'll come back to. And then second, fewer than a third of Americans, if you look at a lot of data that this great outfit at Yale, the Yale Program on Climate Communications, collects a lot of great data on public opinion on climate change, fewer than a third of Americans, or about 29% of Americans, see climate change as an issue of social justice. So today, the focus is how can we hone in on the solutions? So how can we tell a story about solutions that, that make people in humanity coalesce around the idea that, that the future can be better after carbon. And then, and then fundamentally, when it comes to social justice, that unless we see solving climate change as also deeply connected to equity, we're, we could solve climate change, but still have a lot of the deep societal problems that exist today. 
And I think it's really important that we we look at these hand in hand. Mm-hmm. An example of that, maybe just you know a quick example of that could be we could move to a totally new electric car fleet in America. I mean, you could shift all manufacturers of cars to move to electric, you know, electrifying the car fleet in this country. That would be good for climate change. But if, for instance, we're not at the same time talking about how the people working in manufacturing those cars are also earning good paying family wage union jobs, then we're not going to fundamentally change a lot of the issues in our society that, that led us to this problem in the first place, which was, we don't, we can talk more about that, but that's, that's a bit about the story that we're trying to tell is one about solutions and one about social justice. A good friend of mine is an environmental journalist, and we'd had a lot of discussions on these related topics before, but we talked about how, first of all, the field of journalism is predominantly white and wealthier, more educated folks who could get a degree in journalism. And two, when journalists are reporting on the struggles of marginalized communities, the narratives of victimhood easily overtake narratives of resilience and adaptation. For example, the issue we had discussed was journalists typically only having a a few days to go into some marginalized community that they're reporting on to get the gist of some story that they can then report. So it has more of a short-term goal of extracting some story rather than the norm being journalists having time to visit and stay in those communities they're writing stories about for months or even years because the level of authenticity and depth would be so much greater if they were able to do that than having short-term turnaround approaches to storytelling. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on how journalism on environmental and social injustices, mostly told through the lenses of more privileged people outside of those struggles being reported on today, may have impacted the general public's perceptions or the narratives coming out of this sort of approach. I love that question, and I'd probably I'd probably be friends with your friend. I I couldn't agree more. Like I think that's absolutely a really good diagnosis of a lot of the problems. And I'll just maybe answer that in two ways. First, I would say it. At Grist, we've been extremely intentional in either through support to freelancers who are deeply invested and rooted in communities that they're reporting on around environmental justice, or in kind of diversity and equity and thinking about how we're building out the team. We have a fellowship program that every year brings, well, next year it'll bring 12 to 15 young writers, particularly writers of color through Grist who are working on environmental reporting to think about representation in environmental media. And we do a lot of work nationally with writers, particularly writers of color who are doing environmental reporting, because it we, we need to really think about how we're reporting these stories that are about community level impacts of climate change. When you think about environmental justice, I agree with what you were just saying, that, that a lot of those environmental justice stories can't, are about kind of community-based resilience and adaptation to things like pollution or soil contamination or some injustice that that might have been created by the co-location of everything from a warehousing facility that's like spewing bad toxins into the air or the co-location in a rural part of this country around I don't know, seepage of nitrates and groundwater from the ways that we store manure in agricultural communities that are creating cancer hotspots for brown and black communities. Or a third example, and I'll just use two examples for this. We just did this really good investigation that we produced that then was published in partnership with the Miami Herald 
that was uh, looking at the, the negative impacts on air quality of sugarcane burning in Central Florida on Black communities in Central Florida. And it was r- reported out over a long period of time, reported out by a, a writer who really understood the dynamics in the community, who'd been working on it for months. And then when that came out, it had the effect of, I think it drove a lot more impact. It was, it was picked up by the Miami Herald. It was one of the most popular, most read stories that they published on environmental issues over the course of several months. It's since led to the state legislature in Florida um, picking it up and starting to look at what some policy changes might be as a result. So I, I do think that if you invest in the kind of longer-term community-based storytelling that's authentic, grounded in community, told by journalists who understand the communities that they're reporting on, you you have a lot more impact over the long term. At this, this, you know, the flip side of that coin is that it's expensive, mm-hmm. and you know, media and journalism organizations around the country are struggling and um, nonprofit media is struggling, for-profit media is struggling. So it, it does definitely take investment to be able to tell those stories. And maybe the last example that I'll point to is there's a, a great reporter on the Grist team named Zoya Tierstein. And she did this really interesting long form article that that she was in Alaska in some in some native villages for a long period of time. She she ended up coming out this really interesting investigation that was looking at toxins and shellfish and the impacts that that climate and ocean acidification and and the changing chemistry of water in Alaska's fisheries were having on the likelihood of toxicity in shellfish that was leading to all sorts of negative health and economic outcomes for a set of native communities that really relied on that really rely on the shellfish industry for both traditional and cultural purposes but also for economic purposes. And that story too was was really well researched, written, I think reflected authenticity. But at the same time, it took several months of, of Zoya's life to produce. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that takes that costs money. So I I do think it's another reason why we need to be investing more in journalism um, in general so we can kind of do the sorts of things you're describing. Speaking of solutions, I know that within your solutions lab, the fix column, you welcome people who aren't necessarily traditional journalists to contribute their ideas and thoughts. So on the flip side, what is the value in taking down the barrier for everyday people to contribute their voices? And what are some of the most inspiring fix stories you've come across that give you hope? Well, I think that's a hu- there's a huge value there. And Honestly, as I've thought about as I've thought about the long-term direction at Grist, I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to also bring even more of a platform to the voices of the people who are at the forefront of leading the solutions and working toward this future that's so irresistible that you want it right now. I think there's a lot more opportunity to be lifting up those voices and the solutions that people are working on. That's really the focus of that program. And when I when I look to where that that work is going, so every year Grist produces something called the Grist Fifty, and it's a list of fifty typically emerging leaders. I mean, the vast majority are women, people of color, but people who are really at the forefront of the story of of, of environment justice and sustainability. So these are entrepreneurs who are starting fascinating companies, looking at the alternative alternatives to meat protein. I mean, these are these are activists on the front lines. These are political leaders. It's a very diverse community, and every year we get a couple thousand nominations, and we call through those nominations, and we we feature about fifty people. Um, we're doing this now for the sixth year, so so we've actually built this community that we call fixers. We people who are fixing fixing the world for the better. This community of fixers will soon be about three hundred people, 
And we really work to to build connections between this community and then also use the Grist media platform to elevate the solutions that they're working on. So when you when you mention content, we, we really are trying to invite this community of people who are not journalists, these are you know emerging leaders working across a range of disciplines, to use Grist and to contribute to Grist as a platform to, to garner more attention to the solutions they're working on. So I see enormous value on that. You asked about a, an inspiring example. Um, you know, one, one that comes to mind for me is there is a fixer, as we call it within, within Grist, who is, has been working for a long time in, in native and tribal communities, a fellow named Nick Tilson, who started something called the NDN Collaborative, um, which is really working on, on advancing indigenous sovereignty, particularly in the American West. And has been doing really, really powerful work around environmental justice and support to indigenous and tribal communities. So that that's an example of the sorts of folks that we're featuring. Give it all, honey. All your love and money. Give away your soul. So, of course, we know that corporate media still dominates the vast majority of the media sphere in the United States and beyond. What is your take on how differently mainstream corporate media reports on issues pertaining to our ecological crises compared to how Gris does as a nonprofit media outlet, for example? I think there's maybe three problems going on. One is I do think that by and large, though I think the pendulum has swung a bit, by and large, the mainstream media narrative when it comes to climate change is still focused on doom and gloom. So I, I still think you have a doom and gloom narrative about climate. And as a result, it's not an attractive topic. So you, you have a narrative that I think is still stuck in the negative impacts of rising oceans, you know, the negative impacts of more hurricanes and natural disasters, the negative impact of the melting of the Arctic, the Arctic ice caps, you know, the, the, the negative impacts of the release of, of, of all of this, like all of this terrible stored carbon under the permafrost as it melts in, in, in northern Russia. So you have all these really negative or the loss of the loss of biodiversity as a result of climactic changes. So there, there's that story, which I think is a, you know, it's a negative story. It's one of loss. But I also think that that we need to shift to the positive story, which is going to be one about the opportunities that will come out as we solve climate change. So I, I think that's that's one is is kind of moving us beyond doom and gloom. The second is more just that that I think climate journalism and environmental journalism has also been a victim of a trend that's happened nationally in the U.S., which is just the, the lack of editorial newspaper and newsroom capacity in local journalism to tell and report stories. So you know you just don't have there's some, the estimate that I've heard is something like a billion dollars has been come out of the local journalism ecosystem in this country over the past decade. And as a result, you just don't have the capacity in newspapers and newsrooms to tell and report stories. So I, I think as a result, like I, I referenced that Miami Herald example, 
The Miami Herald certainly has the capacity to do awesome reporting on breaking news when hurricanes are coming. But the more that we can support local newsrooms and the local media to also be reporting on on environmental stories, the more that it'll serve you know, awareness and solving the problem. And then the third issue, you brought it up in your earlier question about writers of color and the lack of representation in environmental reporting. And I, I think that, that that is really an additional problem that we need to work on is how do we, how do we really change the, the face of the people who are crafting and telling and reporting the narrative so that it looks a lot more like the country that we're trying to speak to and reach. Right. So the second point that you mentioned, I think, is actually really damaging overall the fact that local journalism has been declining around the country. Because in my mind, what that leads to is a lot more people focused on news at the national or even global level. But oftentimes, these sorts of news stories are are areas where we don't necessarily have direct control over, but we're also increasingly understanding less what is happening locally that we might actually be able to get involved in to make a positive difference within. So just the fact that we have less and less understanding of what's happening right in our communities, but then we're focused more and more on these larger stories that make us feel overwhelmed and helpless because there might not be things we can do directly. I feel like that overall may lead to more inaction and us not understanding how we can contribute positively right where we are. I, I couldn't agree more with you. And I think it also, I think that it's, you know, it's just not bad for climate and environmental reporting. It's also, it's really bad for democracy mm-hmm, <laughs> for a bunch right. for a bunch of reasons. Cause I, I think it's exactly what you're saying. You have this, in my mind, you have this nationalization of, of the story that's happening. And it's, it, it takes out the nuance. It takes out the diversity. It takes out the local context. And, and then suddenly you have, you know, for some, for many, many, many million Americans, you have, you know, national cable news, really defining what that what that narrative is and it's it's to the it's to the detriment of all of us we know that media in an ideal world is meant to be a check on power but corporate media often or sometimes or often fails to take on that role to speak truth to power if they're somehow related to or reliant on that power in order to function at the same time, people are so accustomed to consuming free media content from corporate media that they may mm-hmm. not see the importance of donating to nonprofit or independent media platforms or understanding the differences that may come of media platforms based on how they primarily fund their work. So I'm curious, what has being a nonprofit outlet allowed you to do that you think would have been much more challenging had Grist been founded as a corporate media company? It's a really good question, and I think there's a lot of there's a lot of pieces to that. I I do think that now more than ever, and there's a lot of other organizations. I think there's a you know I would say there's a group of maybe fifteen twenty of us in America that are I would say really important nonprofit media outlets doing important work on a set of issues. And we have colleagues and friends of ours who you know this media outfit, this nonprofit media outlet called Trace that reports on gun violence. There's this group called the Marshall Project that works on criminal justice reporting. There's ProPublica, which does amazing kind of work in, in supporting deeper investigative coverage across a whole range of issues. You have examples like the Texas Tribune. Um, in Texas, it's a nonprofit news outlet that has really deepened the ability to cover everything from Texas politics to we just produced a three-part series on the impacts of coal in Texas, which we worked on with the Texas Tribune. So you're seeing a lot of really, I do think you have a lot of really important nonprofit news outlets that are figuring out 
their business model and figuring out how you can raise money to support journalism. And I'm really hopeful about that. So I, I really hope that this model, this business model that I would say that there are several of us pioneering and, and developing, I hope that it works. And I think it'll be really important for democracy that we figure out a way to make it work. And, you know, you have groups like Chalkbeat, which you may have heard of, that does education reporting. So there's there's a number of groups that are doing this kind of really good work in different areas of coverage, ours being climate environment and justice, I would say. But I think that there's a lot of opportunity there. I think had we been a, a corporate media outlet, it would be much harder to make these sorts of long-term investments in the sorts of deeply reported stories that you were talking about before. Mm-hmm. We might be more focused on you know, clickbait and rapid audience growth and not be able to, to make those longer commitments and the kind of community-based reporting that I think is really necessary to create change. As we're speaking, we know that the Trump era is coming to a close and President-elect Biden will soon take office in January of 2021. How do you think this shift will change the field of environmental journalism, if in any way? Well, it's certainly a different frame. I mean, for, for (laughs) for four years, we spent detailing like the latest and greatest bad thing that happened at the federal level. So whether that was I mean, the list goes on, but I mean, there were really substantive policy issues like the rollback of the clean power plan or pulling us out of the Paris commitments or rolling back protections on public lands for for drilling to some really awful things that were were kind of approved in Alaska. I mean, there's a whole range of is that the frame changes. So so instead of instead of saying, you know, what what are the bad things that can be stopped at the federal level? The question now is how much progress can be made. And that's a much better conversation to be having. And I think from a journalism perspective, it also is a more interesting story to be reporting because especially as a solutions-oriented media outlet, now the federal government hopefully will be a source of solutions and not not kind of the kind of doom and gloom reporting that I was talking about earlier that I thought we needed to get away from. So I think that there are a lot of opportunities now to think about solutions at the federal level. And we'll start to see what those are. I mean, they're big question marks. I mean, will will a Biden administration advance some sort of price on carbon? Will the Biden administration do the kind of massive green energy stimulus that connects employment and jobs with climate and green infrastructure investing that was he rolled out a $2 trillion proposal in July? We'll see what happens with the U.S. Senate after the races in Georgia in, in January. So maybe by the time this airs, We'll know whether the Senate is is Republican or Democratic. So I, I think there are a lot of questions out there. But for the first time, we're also thinking, what does it look like to have a, a solution space to talk about? The other two other big questions, I think, that are out there politically is a lot of the international attention after the U.S. I mean, the U.S. basically abdicated leadership on all things climate over the last four years. So, so now there's an opportunity through diplomacy, through the State Department, through other avenues of influence for the U.S. government to think about, you know, what, what is the U.S. policy going into the next U.N. climate conference, the next COP, as they call it, which will happen at Glasgow. You know, it'll either be virtual or in person, but right now it's slated to be in person in Glasgow at the end of 2021. So there's going to be a huge effort to say, what does is, what is U.S. climate leadership look like globally going into Glasgow at the end of next year? So, so there's a lot of really interesting reporting questions for us to be covering um, as we look to a future administration. Mm. 
During the Trump administration, where a lot of existing environmental legislation and safety standards were actively being rolled back, most of the major media outlets did not shy away from highlighting their assaults on our communities and our earth. So in a sense, having a blatantly racist, hateful and destructive administration may have strengthened our social and environmental movements. But the thing is that these harms to communities and our earth have been happening under different political powers for decades. In some instances, corporate media has just been really unabashed in reporting every single horrible thing that's happened in the past four years and attributing them all to Trump rather than, for example, which rightfully so, but for example, some things also coming from this pre-existing extractive and exploitative system that has persisted since the founding of the country and that has allowed for people like Trump to gain so much power and get to the position that he did. A lot of us now are aware that Biden's platform doesn't go nearly far enough if we really want to address environmental injustice and the climate crisis when time is really of essence. But what are your thoughts on how or whether liberal media corporations may become more complacent or fail to critique Biden's environmental policies because they fear contributing to pushing support away from Democrats for the next round of elections, but the result of which might be complacency to forever justifying the lesser of evils. As we look to the next four years, there are going to be a lot of fights on climate policy that happen at the state level, that happen at the community level, that happen at the federal level. And I think those will be a those will raise a lot of really important journalistic questions for us to be reporting on. But just to your point, I think that you're going to see a lot of very immediate questions that are going to pop up of how does, how does a Biden administration react to a push from activist groups like the Sunrise Movement to embrace and advance a discussion about a Green New Deal? How, what does a Biden administration do after, you know, spending the last year and especially in the last presidential, the the last, you know, presidential debate with, with, with then President Trump talking about not putting a ban on fracking in a number of states that, that for whom fracking is an important economic activity. So whereas there's going to be a lot of pressure from, from components of the left to say, you know, we still need a a fracking ban, not just on public lands, which, you know, we, we currently have one. Or where, where the president, where the president-elect has said we should have one, but also a, a you know a, a ban on fracking on private land. So there's there's a whole bunch of questions I think wrapped up that will create really important reporting. And I think the more visibility and coverage that we have on these debates, the better. Mm-hmm. But at least at least they'll be happening in the context of of forward momentum, <laughs> right. rather than in the context of whether or not we should be rejoining Paris, which I thought Cory Booker had that funny comment in one of the first Democratic primary debates where he's like, rejoining Paris is like kindergarten, which I I agree with. That is like kindergarten. Like we've got to be much, much bolder than that. So we're going to have a lot of discussions um, coming out, I think, around that that'll be important for coverage. Right. So maybe that is part of the difference between how you're able to operate as a nonprofit media platform or how other independent media platforms are able to operate compared to partisan corporate media outlets that might have a deeper agenda of always wanting to bash the other side and support their side. So you're able to still take on a very critical lens through which you examine, for example, Biden's environmental policies. That's right. I think that we are a pretty critical, I think we are a pretty critical outfit. And we're 
we're an editorial organization. We have amazing journalists and editors and freelancers and contributing writers. And I think that there's a lot of journalistic ethics and dedication there to having a, a critical eye, a critical and uh, inquisitive eye to the reporting that we're producing. Mm-hmm. Well, I know a lot of people right now are feeling exhausted from the emotional roller coaster that came from the recent elections. A lot of people celebrated and still a lot of people have the same eco-anxiety for the future. So where do you think our most impactful solutions will lie going forward, given how systemic and deep-rooted a lot of our current injustices and ecological crises are? Eco-anxiety. I think that's interesting you you bring that up because I I think that a very personal level, like if we just step out of the political, if we step out of the kind of policy level, there's more eco-anxiety than we've ever had. And I mean, young kids and teenagers and adolescents and young people are, and, and old people, I mean, people across the, the map, I think, are feeling more eco-anxiety than ever before. And I think something Grist has done over the years, and I, this is really part of what we hope our, what we hope we continue to be is having a really familial, inviting, and friendly voice as a publication that can almost be your friend as you're thinking about eco-anxiety and as you're thinking about what is it that I can do to, to make the story of a better future so irresistible that we get there. So I, I think that idea at more of like a personal and society, cultural level of, of having a companion as you think about eco-anxiety, I think that Grist is a publication is one that we want to wants to be part of that journey with you as an audience member in the same way that if you care about fashion maybe you have that relationship to to cosmopolitan or vogue but if you care about eco-anxiety and like that's something that you wrestle with in your days that that hopefully gris can be a companion as you think about it because i think that that at a personal level we're going to see so much more of it and i think depression anxiety kind of helplessness a lot of these emotions and we want to we want to shift those to empower people to act. And before we wrap up our conversation, if our listeners are working on cool things in their communities and wanted to contribute to the fixed column or gris more generally, can you share how they might be able to do that? And then more generally speaking, your cost to action for our listeners. Absolutely. I, I get, I'll start with a call to action, which is whomever it is, whether it's grist or whether it's another amazing nonprofit journalism outlet, that journalism is so fundamentally important right now. And I think that it's hard to come out of this election cycle and not feel that we need a much, much bigger nonpartisan nonprofit journalism sector in America. So please support nonprofit journalism. I think it's just a it's it's a time to join nonprofit media outlets as members, even if you're just giving $5 a month, it, it adds up and it has a real impact on democracy. And in our case, on climate change. In terms of what an audience member can do to take action, by all means, I think you can you can reach out to us on Grist. We have a, a column named Ask Umbra. Reach uh, out to Umbra, just umbragrist.org, to share your ideas. If you want to contribute a column, you can write to us on our site. We get a lot of submissions, and we don't take all of them, but we definitely do publish them from time to time. So we, we do want to be in conversation with you. What is an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? 
I really like what folks are doing with Future Planet. I think they're doing a great job on Instagram with Future Planet. I think it's uplifting, activating. I think it's beautifully done. And I think it's inspiring. Mm. What do you tell yourself to stay motivated and inspired? I'm an upbeat person. So I kind of have this like, (laughs) I kind of have like an optimistic engine inside of me. So I guess a lot of um, (laughs) self-reliance keeps me inspired and motivated. And what makes you most hopeful for our planet and world at the moment? I think that for the first time over the next several years, we actually have the ideas. We have the social movement. We have the youth movement. We have the technology. We're starting to have the technology. We'll have more of the technology in the years to come. We have the policies. Like I think we have the ingredients to solve the problem. And I, I don't think that was true 10 years ago. It wasn't certainly wasn't true 20 years ago. So I, I am hopeful because I, I do think for the first time, we at least have the ingredients to solve climate change. And what I don't know, right, is if we're going to you know bake that into, into the beautiful cake that we need. But I, I definitely am hopeful in that I think we have the ingredients for the first time. Mm. Well, Green Dreamer, if you want to learn more and stay updated on Brady's work with Grist, you can head to grist.org. They have amazing newsletters. I'm personally signed up and always love reading everything that comes in from Grist. So you can check that out, of course, on their website at grist.org. And you can also find them on most of the major social media platforms. Brady, we appreciate you and your team over at Grist a lot for your work in environmental journalism and for your leadership as well, and really pushing for solutions-oriented stories to inspire and empower your readers and audience. So thank you so much, and thanks so much for joining me here. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Just thanks for this time, and if if you're listening to this in early 2021, Happy New Year. Green Dreamer, we've come full circle here. If our show has moved you, we'd love to get your direct support at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Today's intermission song featured is Souvenir by Irini Skylakaki. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. <laughs>